Welcome to The History of Violence, a podcast that you're already listening to. Okay, so today I'm going to talk about the use of international sanctions, especially economic sanctions, and international diplomacy. Well, this is a bit of a move away from history. I'll be drawn on some examples from over 20 years ago, so let's just count it. This might also seem a little out of place with our usual topics, since sanctions are generally seen as an alternative to violence. But this use of sanctions is actually what I want to discuss. Are these sanctions effective? Are they ethical? Or might they actually just be a form of violence by other means? So what are international sanctions? They can include a range of punishments, generally by way of exclusion, applied by states or international organisations against other states. This typically includes economic sanctions, such as preventing a country from exporting certain commodities to international markets. It can also include diplomatic and political sanctions, such as travel bans. Finally, it can include cultural bans, such as the exclusion of a country from an international sporting competition. The main purpose of such sanctions are to constrain a country or encourage some kind of change in their behaviour, generally in support of international norms like human rights. For example, the United Nations instituted wide-ranging sanctions against Iraq over the invasion of Kuwait and related human rights abuses. On a direct level, this can prevent war by banning the sale of weapons to a belligerent country. More general sanctions can also serve to undermine the economy, therefore disincentivising negative behaviours. Some people, particularly within the US foreign policy community, also seem to see sanctions as a way of fomenting regime change or democratisation without the mess of putting boots on the ground. By making the economy suffer, you make the regime weaker, and by making people poorer, you increase the chance of them rising up and demanding a change of direction, or even a change of leadership. But what is the ethical justification for a policy which, in many cases, relies on making people in other countries poorer? It's a theoretically non-lethal way of doing what would otherwise require war. So the utilitarian argument is that even if there are some negative effects, it's the best of the possible solutions. It rests on the observation that inaction has costs, just like actions do. War with Iran is bad, but allowing Iran to have nuclear weapons is also bad. Compared to these two bad outcomes, sanctions are the lowest cost way of incentivizing better behaviour. This intuitively sounds good, but sanctions are not morally cost-free. In fact, they arguably amount to economic warfare, violence by other means, possibly even a form of man-made famine in some cases. For example, the Venezuelan economy, already made weak by corruption and an over-reliance on oil, was arguably pushed over the edge by fresh rounds of US economic sanctions in 2017. Authors of one report argue that 40,000 more people were killed as a result of these sanctions, largely due to malnutrition and medicine shortages. UN figures highlight the risks to young children in particular, with 22% of under 5 showing stunted growth. Food imports dropped from $2.46 billion in 2018 as compared to $11.2 billion in 2013. Figures on the effects of sanctions in Iraq claimed that over 500,000 children died as a result, although the accuracy of these figures has been brought into question. Nevertheless, these sanctions did take up to 15% off of the GDP of Iraq during the 90s, something which can't help but have had humanitarian implications. Similarly, sanctions on North Korea have contributed to hundreds of thousands of preventable deaths. 
While in all these cases the actions of domestic governments played a huge role, it's clear that sanctions have human rather than purely economic costs. So the utilitarian argument for sanctions isn't as simple as it might seem. There is also a moral question around the idea of using the suffering of a people as a way of attacking a regime, particularly when the goal is ideological or based on regime change rather than the prevention of outside aggression. For example, a US State Department memo from 1960 openly discussed using famine and disease as weapons to bring down Fidel Castro. So you don't like the behaviour of the Cuban government, and then you punish the people in the hope that you can goad them into overthrowing the government for you. But why would they? If they were a functioning democracy, they might not be in this position, so the ability of ordinary people to affect change without widespread violence is doubtful. And what if they simply don't go along with the idea of sanctions? Some people in other countries might disagree with the so-called international norms which sanctions are supposed to uphold. How far are you willing to follow this logic in which the suffering of a country's people is used as a weapon against that country's government? A related problem with this is that uh, in the case of general economic sanctions, or comprehensive sanctions as they're often known, it is rarely the elite who suffer. Black markets and corruption mean that the burden of economic sanctions tend to fall on the poorest rather than on the political class. The North Korean elite function like a royal family while the country suffers a famine. Meanwhile, coup attempts in Venezuela have failed largely because the government is still able to offer prosperity to the military elites, even if the wider economy is in freefall. Basically, political re elites are resistant to outside pressure and are always able to redistribute the burden downwards. It is possible to do targeted or smart sanctions, so only hit those who deserve it. And this is the case in Russia with the current round of sanctions against that country's political class. Here the idea is to target the foreign assets and travel abilities of people connected to the political establishment. But this isn't always effective, and it also changes the scope from a large-scale change to simply changing the behaviour of individuals. Russian-targeted sanctions might have made life harder for some people within the establishment, but haven't particularly undermined the state or the state's foreign policy. Predatory elites might also still find ways of shifting the economic burden to others, once again meaning that sanctions have unequal and unintended side effects. Plus, there are always ways around this for people rich and powerful enough. These are often people who have made a career out of corruption and creative accounting. If you can't visit your townhouse in London, you simply visit your apartment in Shanghai. If you can't use your German bank, you can open one in the Caymans. So, there are two key problems with sanctions. High costs in terms of second-order effects on ordinary people and a tendency to punish the undeserving. To put it into sort of moral philosophy language, it's potentially problematic on both utilitarian and deontological grounds. Utilitarian because the costs might often outweigh the benefits, and deontological because it involves using people as a means to an end, namely using the people of a country as a way of removing the government. But how do sanctions work in practice? And do they work at all? South Africa is probably the best example of a success story, with international sanctions and boycotts covering economics and culture arguably contributing to the end of apartheid. Similar arguments that I've just outlined about the impact of sanctions were played out, with politicians like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan arguing that sanctions would harm ordinary black people more than the government. Reagan therefore favoured a policy of what he called constructive engagement. A policy which he didn't extend to left-wing governments in Latin America, but which he was happy to apply to the anti-communist whites in Africa. 
However, there were also voices from within the South African anti-apartheid movement which made similar points with the Zulu leader Mangosuthu Buzlezi, sorry about the pronunciation, <laughs> arguing that sanctions can only harm all the people of Southern Africa. This can only lead to more hardships, particularly for the blacks. The effectiveness of these sanctions has also been debated by historians and commentators since. Furthermore, much of the pressure came from voluntary divestment and boycotts by private actors such as companies and individuals, rather than legalised interstate sanctions. Furthermore, South Africa was culturally and economically tied in with the West, so the actions of Western companies, consumers and artists mattered. This makes it a little different from cases like North Korea or, to a certain extent, Iran. It doesn't really matter in North Korea if they're banned from the Rugby World Cup or if Bono refuses to play there. They have less to lose from disengagement with Western countries than South Africa did. The timing is also important. By this stage, the South African government was the last really functioning white apartheid state. Decolonisation in Africa had started with the independence of the Gold Coast, renamed Ghana, in 1957. British colonies were all independent by the mid-60s, and by 1980 the independent apartheid nation of Rhodesia had been renamed Zimbabwe and was under the control of Robert Mugabe and ZANU-PF. Despite sanctions on South Africa going back to the 1970s, it was the last remaining apartheid state by a long distance, pouring water on the idea that sanctions helped to speed up the process. Although there is an intuitive argument that economic sanctions helped to isolate and weaken the regime, ultimately helping bring them to the table, the whole process was long overdue. Probably the most important thing to consider is the role played by groups within South Africa, such as the African National Congress, who were the driving force behind the end of the racial caste system. Crucially, there was a military component to the Black Liberation Movement, led by Umkonto Wesweze, or the Spear of the Nation, which received support from foreign countries like Angola. Sanctions and divestment may have helped bring the apartheid regime to the table, but only in the context of a vast, well-organised, grassroots public movement for change, which was also backed by groups which were ready and willing to use violence. Such a movement is not always present, or perhaps not always desirable, which may explain the limited success of sanctions as a force for regime change or democratisation elsewhere. <clears throat> to speculate a wee bit and give another example, we can see a nascent attempt by some private citizens to engage in a boycott and divestment programme against Israel over their treatment of Palestine. So far this appears to have hardened resolve in Israel, which continues to elect hardliners to office. Even if states got in on the act, Israel would likely be able to maintain its position of strength as long as it kept its web of allies and its advanced military capabilities. The idea that the rest of the world being against Israel wouldn't necessarily induce the people to elect more moderate leaders, even if ordinary people came under increasing economic pressure. In fact, we could reasonably expect the opposite to be true, as people would understandably develop a siege mentality. So, a change in the internal politics of a country would require strong domestic forces pushing for that kind of reform. At best, sanctions could help to speed along a process that was already underway. At worst, sanctions could actually make change more difficult. But how about the record of sanctions as a way of constraining behaviour in the international realm without resorting to military force? The evidence for this is pretty poor. In Iran, North Korea and Venezuela, the regimes are still going strong, despite the suffering of their people. In fact, quantitative studies seem to show that the longer sanctions go on, the less chance they have of succeeding, explaining the remarkable perseverance of the Hermit Kingdom in North Korea. In Libya and Iraq, sanctions were used to constrain Gaddafi and Saddam. 
The sanctions and general status of these countries as pariah states at one point did seem to affect the behaviour of their leaders, with Gaddafi even being brought back into the fold briefly. However, in the end, both of these countries ended up suffering a Western intervention uh, with disastrous post-war violence. Saddam was publicly executed while Gaddafi was sodomised with a bayonet, with his body then being put on display and pictures of his corpse being splashed all across Western tabloids. In these cases, sanctions hurt the people while they were used, at best temporarily constraining the regimes they were targeting and ultimately failing to prevent war anyway. Even to the extent that they managed to bring Saddam and Gaddafi under control for some time, the message that this sent was undermined by their gruesome deaths. If Gaddafi played ball with Western powers to have sanctions lifted and still ended up with his body on display while the country burned, then the North Korean elite are probably happier just to absorb the sanctions. Indeed, the elder Kims both died of heart attacks, while more compromising dictators died screaming and humiliated. This hardly incentivises the regimes to respond to sanctions in the way that game theorists and foreign policy wonks would hope. You might notice that most of the examples I'm using, with the exception of South Africa, are basically synonymous with enemies of the West. Um, and this brings us on to the final critique of sanctions, which is basically that they're a tool of Western imperialism. The US sanctions against Cuba, for example, look increasingly vindictive, particularly in the post-Cold War era. Countries like Venezuela and Cuba pose minimal risk to the stability of the international system, and while their governments are far from perfect, they are not worse than many of the right-wing regimes that have been uh, propped up in that region. Their primary crime appears to be their ideological opposition to US-style capitalism. Iran might be a more destabilising regional force with a very poor record on human rights and a tendency to support violent proxy forces in other countries. And there are certainly reasons why the international community would want to prevent them from getting nuclear weapons. However, there's often a stench of self-interest and hypocrisy around efforts to isolate countries like this, particularly on the issue of human rights. Israel and Pakistan both have nuclear programs and have sponsored attacks in other countries, while the human rights record of Saudi Arabia has not prevented them from receiving support and weaponry from Western countries, even in the context of a man-made famine uh, as a result of the war in Yemen. The idea of sanctions as a general tool for moral good falls apart fairly quickly if you compare those countries being targeted by economic sanctions with those ones being militarily supported by foreign powers. Even if the use of sanctions in the abstract could be seen as ethically permissible, their use in real-world politics has generally been driven by realpolitik rather than moral virtue. Of course, just because sanctions are applied unevenly doesn't mean that they are always bad. Um, it's possible for hypocrisy to be present, but for sanctions to still be used in some cases, well. But we should be careful to think about why one particular country is being targeted for sanctions while another is given a free pass or even support by the same countries. So, the overriding problem with sanctions is that they are an extremely blunt instrument. They might work, kind of, some of the time, but only in very specific circumstances. Worse, they hurt a lot of people, and they might even backfire. They will remain a tool in international diplomacy, for reasons related to practicality. The international community needs ways of shaping behaviour, and sanctions are going to be one of them. And to be honest, they probably should be on the table, if only as a way of slowing down a headlong rush towards war. But there are two big takeaways that I can see about sanctions. Firstly, you should be very sceptical of anyone who claims to have generalised humanitarian reasons for supporting economic sanctions. 
For example, the Maduro regime in Venezuela has done bad things, but are sanctions really going to help the people there? And why is it Venezuela being targeted and not any of the other tin pot dictatorships around the world? Secondly, never believe anyone who attempts to pass off sanctions as being a harmless, low-cost alternative to war, because someone always, always pays the price. Well, I hope that was interesting. There's lots of stuff I didn't even discuss. For example, what's the legal issues involved in sanctions on whose authority can one country um, do that to another country? And that's a really interesting part of it as well. Um, If you have any suggestions for a future episode, please get in touch. And otherwise, yeah, thanks for listening. It would be great if you could give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher or even give us a like on social media. Um, You know, Twitter, Facebook, you know how to use the internet. Anyway, bye.